So you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 11 through 15 this morning, but I will read to verse 23 to set the context. Uh, we'll probably take a break at the end of chapter 2. That's a good time to break for Christmas. Uh, so we'll probably uh, do the opening chapters of Matthew. I think there's uh, enough there uh, to get done. I look forward to shattering all your dreams about Christmas once again. That's one of my favorite things about the Christmas series is just to destroy all the thoughts you had about it and just make it so much better. Uh, so I look forward to that. So Matthew chapter, we'll look at Matthew and uh, the beginning of Matthew then. So, uh, but today, Colossians chapter uh, 2, verses 11 through 23. Begin reading at verse 11. In whom you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwritten handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things, which he has not seen. Vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things, uh, which could all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Amen. Let us pray. Again, O oh God, we thank you for who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we again cling to this identity as your people as we walk this world. So often we are forgetful. So often we do not remember this blessed reality of what we are in him. May it give us encouragement, may it give us strength of who we are as we walk this world. And so thank you, O God, that we are complete in him. We do not need anything else to make us complete, but we have all we need in Christ and his finished work and the work that he continues to do by the power of the Spirit. And so we pray, O God, that we would look to our Savior by faith, that we would live a life of faith in him, even in our sanctification, even in our Christian walk, O God, we do pray. And we pray that you give us illumination from on high to understand what your word says. So often, O oh God, our minds wander and think of other things. Our minds think of the world, uh, the things we must do tomorrow and think of the world. But may we set our eyes upon you today, set our eyes upon you even now. May we be awake and attentive what, uh, to what you have to say to us uh, in these words. And so we pray, O oh God, that your saints would be edified. We pray that sinners would be saved. And we pray in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, that term identity comes up often in our modern context. In a relativistic society, people are finding their identity in all sorts of things. People ask the question, who am I? 
and they seek to find it in things that do not fulfill. They seek to find it in things that do not last. Religion, lifestyle, jobs, relationships, so on and so forth. Now, those things aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves, but they do not everlastingly fulfill. And they do not make us complete. There's only one who makes us complete, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. We are complete in him. We are fulfilled in him and not in anything else. That is where the Christian's identity lies, that we are united to him and in him. And these false teachers were focusing in on their identity, namely their ascetic religion, their traditions of men, their vain philosophy, and their requirements. Now, the sad reality is, of those men, of what they taught, their identity is one that is unforgiving. If they wish to be united to the law, if they wish to keep the law, if they wish to follow the traditions of men to find communion with God, it is something that is sorely lacking. It is something that is not going to fulfill, and in fact, is something that is going to damn them to hell forever and ever. And so Paul wants to write to these Colossians to remind them in whom they are. He wants to remind them that in their Christian walk, they walk in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the body or the main heart of the book is in chapter 2, verse 6, as we saw last time. As you have received Christ, so then walk in him. You don't need these traditions of men. You don't need these basic Sunday uh, elementary school principles. You are already finished and complete in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a more excellent identity in the one who identified with us. And chapters uh, 2, verses 11 through 15 unpacks what that means for God's people. What does it mean that we are complete in him? And chapter uh, 2, verses 16 through 23 is going to deal with the problems of that vain philosophy. But Paul starts, as he continues to elaborate what it means to be complete in him, he starts with what we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because anything not in Christ is empty. Anything not in Christ is vain. Anything not in Christ is hollow. And so we need one who can complete us, one who fulfills us, one in whom we are complete. And certainly the Mosaic law, which is certainly connected with the false teachers at Colossae, those stipulations that they identified with and sought to keep do not save, but they only condemn. And it's perplexing and troublesome that these Jewish uh, people wish to assert that one's fulfillment and salvation comes from circumcision. And what makes them more concerning or makes it more concerning is they are probably a faith plus group. Yes, you believe on Christ, but you're not complete in him. What makes you complete in him is you must be circumcised. What makes you complete in him, you must follow these dietary laws. What makes you complete or what gives you communion with God is through these laws to keep. And they might think it's an identity of salvation, but in reality, it's an identity of despair. If that is the way, that identity only leads to eternal death as repayment to God for the debt that is owed. When one sins against God, we owe God, and God is going to have that paid by our own punishment or found in somebody else. Somebody else takes that punishment. Somebody else takes that blame. Somebody else takes our trespasses upon him. 
And a lot of what Paul is saying here, he's again encouraging the Colossians against this heresy that is there, a heresy that could affect them. He's saying, why do this? Why go back to that identity that only leads to death when there is one who paid that debt and you are complete in him? And so in verses 11 through 15, he really is emphasizing how they are complete in him, building off on what he said in verse 10. You are complete in him. He's emphasizing our vital union. He's emphasizing our identity with Christ. He's emphasizing if you believed on Christ, here is who you are in his work. And two main things he highlights when it comes to our identity is that one, we are circumcised in him, verses 11 and 12. And secondly, we are alive in him, verses 13 through 15. So those are my two points. Circumcised in Christ, that is our identity, but also alive in him in verses 13 through 15. That is who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's first look at circumcised in him in verses 11 and 12. And notice he highlights a circumcision made without hands in verse 11. In him, you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Now, the implication seems to be, although it's not as clear as it was in the book of Galatians, but the implication seems to be is that these false teachers were saying, you must be circumcised. You must have faith plus circumcision. You must engage in the circumcision of the flesh. And so Paul is then writing to say, no, in Christ, you we're circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. There is a better circumcision. There is a triumphant Christ, and it's in him that we walk. Again, building off that context of how we walk in Christ in verses 6 and 7, taught in him, changed in him, versus the vain philosophy of the false teachers. He dwells with us, all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily, and we are fulfilled and full in him. And he says, in him, you also were circumcised. That is, he's highlighting our present status before God most high. He's highlighting what is given to us by the power of the spirit. And brethren, what he is saying here, and he's going to unpack throughout the rest of the book and really the entire book, is that we have the present possession of the end time resurrection benefits. We have the resurrection power already before we are resurrected. We look for the resurrection of the body, but we have been resurrected with Christ by the power of the spirit in our hearts. This is something that we possess in Christ. This is something that Paul possesses in Christ. This is something the church at Colossae possessed in Christ, but these heretics do not. They think they've made it to the end time, but in reality, they're still part of the elements of this world. And Paul's saying it's only in Christ that we have been changed. It's only in Christ that we have been set apart. Now, it's probably good for us to understand circumcision according to the Old Testament or the circumcision made with hands that is used in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. This goes back to the sign given to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 17. And remember, that was a blessed sign given to Abraham. That uh, it was a sign of God setting apart Abraham's seed. That's why it's the circumcision of the foreskin to set apart the seed. That's why it's that part that is circumcised. 
God promised to Abraham that in him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. He gives him land, but he also gives him a seed. And until Isaac is born, it's all about waiting for that seed to come. He is setting them, setting them apart, setting apart Abraham's offspring. And it was a sign for the old covenant people. It was a blessed sign for the old covenant people. It was a sign of their being set apart, but it had limitations. It was primarily only for the Jews. It was primarily only for males. It was only one part. And it also had the possibility of being cut off. The pedo-baptists don't like that. The, the, the folks that like to baptize their babies based upon the faith of the parents or because of the promise given to the parents and their seed, they usually highlight how circumcision and baptism go hand in hand. And they certainly do, but it's not in the way that they think it is. But they don't like to talk about that judgment aspect. I mean, God says to Abraham, they will be cut off if they're not circumcised. And what's interesting is in Exodus 4, Remember that weird kind of confusing section where God's about to come and kill somebody with Moses. Moses didn't do something right. Moses didn't circumcise his kids. And so what was happening is it probably was that God was coming to kill his children and Zipporah snipping a snake saved. There she is. She saves those ones by way of circumcision, but there is that possibility of being cut off. Now, this is different. The one that God gives us in the new covenant is different. In him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Now, there is the language in Romans 2 about the circumcision of the heart. That certainly is involved here as well. It's certainly the work of the spirit to work in the hearts and lives. That's the difference, the old and the new. That is, the old circumcision was external. The new circumcision is internal. The old circumcision was only for males and only for, gen uh, only for Jews. But the new circumcision is for all who are in Christ, whether Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. And it's not just one part, but it is the whole part that has been set apart. So it's the circumcision, the spiritual work of God in the hearts of his people. This is more explicit in Romans 2, which certainly builds off of what God says in Deuteronomy 30. In Deuteronomy 30, there's the promise that God will be the one who circumcises hearts. Remember, God says to the old covenant people, circumcise your hearts. They can't do it. The old covenant was never meant to be a way of salvation. It was only meant to be about life in the land. And God says to them, circumcise your hearts, but they can't. And so the promise of the new covenant is God will circumcise hearts. God will set apart. God will change. God is the one who brings about that spiritual work by setting his people apart. And so he's saying, in him, you have been circumcised. Now, why does he say made without hands versus hearts? I have no idea. I'm just kidding. I have some idea, but I don't know fully. But Beale likes to highlight the connection between this and the temple. And I think there is some connection there why he chooses made without hands versus heart. A, the context, I mean, throughout he's talked about how Christ dwells with us, how Christ is near, how Christ uh, tabernacled among us. We already saw that in 2.9 and 1.19. Jesus is the one who dwells with us that we might dwell with him. I remember the heretics were saying, yes, this is how we got into the temple. We did all these things. 
And Paul is saying, no, Christ came down and we dwell with him. So there's a temple aspect here. The way in which we have communion and prara dwell with God and God is with us by his presence is in the Lord Jesus Christ. John 2 highlights this. And I think the two other places where made without hands is used in the Bible highlights this as well. We already saw one in Mark 14, 58, which I think is the key to the whole Olivet Discourse. When Jesus is on trial, that show trial, that night trial before the Sanhedrin, what do the false teachers say? They say, look, he said he's going to destroy this temple in three days and build one made without hands. And made without hands is the work of God versus the work of men. It's the spiritual work versus something of this world. And so what Jesus, what is clearly uh, implied by the false witness, even though the one is a false witness, what he's saying is true. That Jesus is the temple. Christ is the temple. That is how we dwell with God. The Ark of the Covenant points to Christ coming. The dwelling of the cloud uh, at, the, at the tabernacle in Exodus 40, the dwelling of the cloud at the temple in 1 Kings 8, are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Not in these law-keeping, uh, the law-keeping, not in circumcision, but in the circumcision made without hands. And so, what we see Christ do as our temple, what we see him do in Mark 14, 58, by his dying and rising again, is what he gives us. He circumcised our hearts that we might have communion with him, Colossians 2, but he also has set apart our bodies, 2 Corinthians 5, 1. That's the third place where made without hands is used. And there Paul is contrasting between earthly bodies versus heavenly bodies. And the fact is that though we die, we still have a heavenly body that awaits us. Remember, our everlasting life is going to be one of embodiment, not disembodiment. What I mean by that is it's going to be a reunion of body and soul. When someone dies before, uh, in Christ, before Christ comes back, their souls go to be with God in paradise. Their bodies go into the grave, but we still look for something. We still look for the reunion of body and soul. And so I think in line with, I think the argument Paul is highlighting and the encouragement Paul is giving us here in Colossians 1, what Christ has done for us, by being that temple, we have his presence now by the spirit and because of a changed heart, and we long for it bodily when Christ comes back. We already have a redeemed body or a, a redeemed heart, a resurrected heart. We long for a resurrected body, but that is something that is promised because of Christ. And so the encouragement, I think of what he's saying here is, we already have communion with God because Christ communed with us. We have communion with him now by the spirit, and we will have full communion with him bodily when he comes again. So I think that's why he highlights made without hands, the temple aspect, our communion aspect with God. Then he goes on to unpack how this happens. The rest of verses 11 and 12 just unpack and modify that main idea. Circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Notice how we are circumcised. By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. The image of stripping off that clothing that is dead and gross. And the emphasis here seems to be on that sinful nature that has been put away. The old man has died. 
the inadamness of us has passed away. We have passed, it's been passed away in the Lord Jesus Christ. The old man has been stripped off, putting off the body of the sin, the flesh. Now that is done through Christ. We see this in 120. That is, we see how does he reconcile all things, made peace through the blood of his cross. And then in verse 20, uh, 22, how does he reconcile us in the body of his flesh through death? Christ was not sinful, but Christ took on human flesh, took on a human nature, and he died as that perfect sacrifice. That what uh, for what purpose? That the old man might die in him. So that has been stripped away. That has been torn away in Christ. But also notice how by the circumcision of Christ in verse twelve. Now, what does this mean? Now, it could refer to Christ's circumcision, literally, in Luke 2.21, although I don't think that's entirely uh, the full picture. I think Luke, even in Luke 2.21, the emphasis of Christ being circumcised in Luke 2 is that he's born to keep the law. And also, too, in Luke 2.21, we have his name, Jesus. Why is he called Jesus? Because he's going to save his people. Well, how does he save his people? By being born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. So I think the circumcision of Christ, certainly clearly here in Colossians 2, highlights his living, his dying, and his rising again. It highlights what he does as the Savior. But I think the emphasis primarily by the circumcision aspect is his dying. He was cut off for his people. He was set apart for his people. He died for his people. And I do think dying, buried, and rise again are all involved in these verses. So I think the circumcision of Christ, and the commentators highlight this, is referring to his dying for his people. So how is it that we are circumcised? A, the old flesh has been torn off, and it's been torn off because Christ was circumcised and died for us. So we have this because of these things, but also notice what we have in verse 12. We've been buried with him and raised with him. We have the circumcision by his dying, his uh, being buried and rising again. And he says in verse 12, buried with him in baptism. Now the explanation of this spiritual circumcision does go with baptism. The ordinance and sacrament of baptism is an outward sign of the inward work. And so we really are, notice all the language in him. You've been circumcised in him. Now you've been buried with him. You actually died to your sins in him. Now we die in him as he dies on the cross. He dies as a representative for his people but he actually does that and brings it about by the power of the spirit in our own lives. I'll highlight that more when we get to though we were dead, but we really have brethren. If you've believed on Christ, if you've looked to him, we actually have died and been buried in our, with our sins, our sins have died and been buried with him. Paul highlights this in Romans six. What shall we say then? Shall we keep on sinning that grace may abound? May it never be. And what does he start with? You've died to your sins in Christ. You've been raised with Christ. Here is who you are in Christ Jesus. You've been buried with him in 
baptism. That's why baptism is such a blessing. It does not save by the actual washing, but baptism signifies the saving that God brings. It signifies our dying, being buried, and rising again. It signifies our being cleansed and washed in him. It signifies our endeavoring to walk in new life in him. That's why baptism is so important and so crucial. Yes, one is not saved by baptism, but the language in scripture can be super squeamish for us sometimes because it highlights how vital and blessed it truly is. How God stoops to our nature in the sacraments. God stoops to our nature in the ordinances. Brethren, we do have a visual of the gospel in two ways. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's why when someone's baptized, you should be there. (laughs) That's why when we partake of the Lord's Supper, you should be there. Because the baptism, what does it signify? Our, as I've said, dying, rising, or buried, rising with him, being washed in him. The water signifies all those things. That's why you must be dunked completely, not just sprinkled. All of it shows what Christ has done for us. And the same thing is true with the Lord's Supper, that ongoing ordinance for us. We have the bread, which signifies Christ's body, and we have the wine, which signifies Christ's blood shed for us, body broken. We have visuals for us even now to remind us of what we are in him. That's another reason to be present at a baptism. It's not just for the party being baptized, but it's for us to be reminded of our baptism, be reminded of what we once, what we are in Christ, to be reminded of our identity in him. I think Davenant has a great little way to think of the sacraments and how it works and uh, how it operates. He says, sacraments represent by similitude. It's not me literally dying and being raised again by that baptism. It's not literally the body and blood of Christ, but it's a similitude. It's a similarity. It is something that signifies something else. And that significance then is given by institution. Christ ordains it for the new covenant, Matthew 28 for baptism and uh, the, the gospels at the last supper for the Lord's supper. It's signified by institution. This is my body. This is my blood. Similitude given meaning by Christ. But who is it that sanctifies us? It's Christ himself. It's not literally the, 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 the bread and the wine. It's not literally the water, but it is Christ. It is Christ who sanctifies, we are sanctified by the virtue of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we partake figuratively by faith. And we really are feeding upon the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit and by faith. Not literally, but really and figuratively. That's why it's also so very important for us. Christ really does sanctify us as we observe, and as we see, and as we are reminded of what he has done for us and what he continues to do for us in him. So we've been buried. We really died to those sins in him, which baptism signifies. But also, baptism signifies we've been raised. Verse 12, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, again, death burial, and resurrection. What Christ accomplishes in history at his time at 
what, 33 AD or whatever it is, 30 AD. He really is the one. He's the representative of his people then. But we are really, really worked on by the power of the Spirit in our life. That's why Christ continues to work, right? It's not just what he did then, but he's what he still does now. I think we sometimes forget that. Christ has died for us, and his work is finished based on his finite based on his cross work, but he still prays for us, does he not? And he prays that we would, when we are in born and when we are in time and space, that we would be saved, those to whom he has died for. That is why we say the Father plans decree. Certainly the Son and the Spirit were there too. But also the, 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 the Son accomplishes and the Spirit then applies. It's He's still working, brethren. He's still working now. And even as Luke says in Acts 1, he says of all that Christ began to do and to teach, referring to Luke. Christ doesn't stop, does he? And he is our Lord, and we are identified with him. We are in him. We have been died and buried and raised with him. And notice, too, where we receive it, when we receive it, through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. The instrument by which we receive these benefits and blessings is through faith in God, through faith in Christ, through faith in his resurrection. Now, we also know it is God who gives us the power to believe. Ephesians 2.8, faith is a gift. But it is really the power of God to save, not man. So this is what he's trying to highlight here as well. We don't save ourselves. God saves us. And we believe upon him who works in the working of God who raised him from the dead. The power of God in the resurrection and the power of God in that resurrection of Christ is the power of God that worked to save you. And it still works in you now. That's what he's trying to say here, brethren. The resurrection power that is seen in Christ's resurrection is what the believer has now. You possess this now. You have this now. You are in him now. That is your identity. And I think it's this, uh, the, the language of working of God is also the same word used in 129, where Paul says, to this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which he works in me mightily. God still works, brethren. Do we believe that? We are in him and we are saved in him. We've been died and buried and raised with him. Do we believe that very thing? Davenant says, for he not only expiated our sins by his blood, but he hath renewed our hearts and washes away the body of sins, which cleaves to our souls by his spirit. And I think the language of Paul here and in other places as well is what makes eschatology so very personal. It's what makes eschatology matter. Sometimes when I use the word eschatology, the study of the last times, we all like to think of when's the world going to end? Is it ending now because of how the world is and everything going on? And is there going to be a helicopter that's going to blow us all up? What's going to happen? I don't know if it's a helicopter that blows us all up, but people are like, was Revelation talking about the helicopters today? That's not the main point of eschatology. The main point of eschatology was the kingdom coming in, or perhaps better yet, is the kingdom coming in. 
That is, the last days begun when Christ shed his blood for his people. The last days begun when Christ was resurrected for his people. We are living in the last days just as the apostles were. Last days just characterize the time between Christ's first and second coming. And so what he is saying here, he doesn't use the language of spirit that's used in other places, is that we have the agent of new creation, the spirit, and we have an end time identity in Jesus Christ. Our identity is in the new last Adam. Our identity is with the end time latter tabernacle, latter day tabernacle Christ. Our identity is with the outpouring of the spirit. That is what we are, or that is who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it matters. Eschatological power has worked to save you and works in you now. Davenant says, therefore, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is the cause of our mortification and spiritual vivification. What that means is we just die to sin daily and grow into the image of Christ. Who's the cause? Jesus and his finished work. The heretics said otherwise. They said, yeah, Christ died for you. That's fine, but you got to keep it till the end. That's not what Paul is saying, and that's flat-out heresy, what the heretics were saying. Christ is the cause of all that we need. Christ is the one, his death, burial, and resurrection, that is where our identity lies. And Paul is going to use this language later on in Colossians 3. He also uses this in Romans 6 as well as the reason to command us to honor God. What he's saying is, here's who you are in Jesus Christ. Now live as someone in Jesus Christ. In 3, 9, and 10, he says, do not lie to one another since you have put off. It's the same word of putting off that we'll see in 2.15. Similar word that we saw in 2.11 about putting off the body of the sins. You have died to the old man. You are the new man. So don't lie. <laughs> You are the elect one. Put on compassion. You are the beloved one. You see, what he's trying to highlight, and the same thing he highlights in Ephesians 4 is, again, here's who you are. You've died in Adam. You've been raised in Christ. Now live as the new Adam, in, or as the, in the last Adam, who is our Lord. And in Romans 6, 12, he says, Therefore, let not sin reign in your body. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins have been washed. You've died with Christ. Now walk as one in him and one raised with him. He also uses that language in Colossians 3 as well as the way to spur us on in our Christian walk. Here's who we are. Here's how we live as the one in Christ. Brethren, I think if we understood that more, it might help us a lot in our Christian walk. It might help us in our battles with sin. Christ, here is what you have said. And I was listening to a sermon by Albert Martin this week. I don't even remember what it's about, to be honest with you, but I remember this one thing. I should probably pay attention to what I'm listening to. But he's like, I was struggling with something. And I went up to my, my room and sat at my desk and I opened Romans 6. And he's like, I prayed that to God. God, this is what I am in you. Now help me with this temptation. And he's like, God helped me. Brethren, we must pray God's promises back to him. Here is what he says you are in him. Now live as the new man in him. You are circumcised 
in him. Let's then look secondly. You've been circumcised in him. Let's then look at alive in him in verses 13 through 15. Now, certainly all the living aspect, how we live in him is in verses 11 and 12. But how we become alive in him is more emphasized in verses 13 through 15, what really Christ does for us. And in verse 13, he highlights what we once were. You were dead. Though you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. The implication is one who is spiritually dead, one who is in spiritual darkness, one who is not in the Lord Jesus Christ, one who was once in the kingdom of darkness. And as we consider that language with Ephesians 2, can anybody save themselves if they're dead? Can anybody grab what those things, I can't remember what they're called, that you know shock you into a, being alive again? I don't remember what they are. I'm sorry, I'm losing a blank right now. But can anybody do that when they're dead? No, they're dead. There's only one who can revive. There's only one. Is it a defibrillator? Is that what it's called? Sorry, there it is. There's only one who can save us. There's only one who can make us alive. There's only one who can work in us. And it is God. You were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. That was your former identity. Salvation is not the work of natural man, but it is the gift of God. And God gives us all that we need. We are born in sin. We walked in this world for some time, a lot of us in sin. And then Christ and the Spirit worked according to God's decree in our own hearts and lives to save us and change us to call us out of darkness into marvelous light, though we were once dead. That is what we once were, and here's what we are. He's going to highlight what we are now, but you were dead. And notice why we were dead, because of your trespasses. The language of trespass carries the idea of walking but falling, right? Stumbling, tripping over. That's what our sins are stumbling and tripping we stumble and trip over those very things certainly we call them sins and transgressions but here it is trespasses you walked but you kept falling you heretics you walk but you keep falling there's only one way to stand and not fall and that is in somebody else your former identity was once dead in adam but now you're alive in christ and the implication is if you're not in christ now you are dead in adam you're walking as the spiritual dead. You're walking as you make your way to your physical death, but as you make your way to your physical death, you do so spiritually dead. And when you make your way to that physical death, when you die, you shall face everlasting death because of your sins. You've violated God's law, transgressed against him, and if you're not in Christ, this is what you are. And so he says, your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Again, the one who was uncircumcised was the one who was kicked out of the temple, right? Kicked out of the people of God, the ones who were alienated from God. And so one blessed truth to highlight here is he's talking to Gentiles who once were uncircumcised, but now they are circumcised because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were not allowed into the temple, but now they are part of the temple in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the Jews who thought that they were the circumcised are actually the ones who are uncircumcised. I mean, Paul throws a dig at them in Philippians chapter three. He calls them the mutilation. 
That is the opposite. Rather than circumcising, he calls it mutilation. And perhaps even as well, the opposite of made without hand, uh, made without hands is made with hands. And sometimes made with hands was used for idols. So what he's saying is circumcision is an idol. What he's saying is the temple is an idol. When we have the true temple, who has come, namely our Lord Jesus Christ. But you were once these things, certainly uncircumcised in your flesh, uncircumcised spiritually, but he is made alive together. Christ dies for his elect, and he applies the benefits in their lives. I just want to clarify something that I said two weeks ago that I think was very confusing. When we talk about who Christ dies for, and when we talk about the benefits applied, I said Christ dies for every single person without distinction, not every single person without exception. That's confusing. What I meant to say was Christ dies for his people, and his people make up distinctions. Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Perhaps it would be better to say Christ dies for all, not all without exception, but all without distinction. That should be more clear. I think you understood what I said, but I want to just clarify what I meant by that very thing. I think this is the time to highlight that. Who does Christ die for? And what does he give to them? Those who were once dead, he gives them these benefits by the Spirit. He makes them alive. Verse 13, and he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now, the made alive is also used in Ephesians 2. It's the language of regeneration. It's the language of a changed hearts. It's the language of connected with that heavenly circumcision that set apart by God. But the emphasis, again, even though it's alive in him, it's how we become alive in him. Then verses 13 through 15. And notice how we become alive in him. Verse 13. Having forgiven you all trespasses. This is where all means all, brethren. <laughs> He's forgiven you all trespasses. The trespasses you have committed, the trespasses you will commit, and the trespasses you commit right now. He has forgiven you, dear brethren, of all trespasses, of all stumblings. He has pardoned and taken them out of the way. And this also is the reason why we ought to be forgiving to other people. It's the same word used in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. You've probably seen there's been a lot of connection with Ephesians and Colossians, a lot of same stuff said, but for perhaps differing, not differing reasons, but differing purposes for why he's writing. But he does say in Colossians 3.13, as the elect, as we put on holy, beloved, tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ has forgiven you, so you also must do. You've been forgiven all your trespasses. And as you interact with Christians with remaining corruption, we have to forgive them as well. I'm not saying we have to be best friends all the time, but you still should be forgiving to other people. Quick to forgive rather than slow to hold grudges. Well, unfortunately, we're quick to hold grudges and slow to forgive, but we ought to forgive because Christ has forgiven us all our trespasses. That is why we are made alive in him. Christ has done something for us that is then given to us by the Spirit. And then also notice in verse 14, how or why we have, we are alive together. 
he wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. The image here is of an IOU. It is a record of debts, is the language that is used here in the Greco-Roman world. God does keep a record of debts. He does. He knows all the sins that you have ever committed, but in him, he has taken them away. If you're not in Christ, he knows all that you have done. And he knows all that you've committed against him, all the sins that you have violated against God most high. He knows them all. And one day, I have to give an account before him on that judgment day. That day is coming. The only way to flee that judgment to come is through faith in Christ who takes away that debt. That's the image, isn't it? He has forgiven us having wiped out the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. Isn't that forgiveness? <laughs> Delete. It's gone. All that record of debts is gone because Christ bore the punishment upon himself. That is the only way of salvation is to believe on him, to have that record of debts removed and taken away. God's law was never meant to be a means of salvation. The old covenant law was never meant to be a means of salvation. The only time the law was a means of salvation was with Adam. If Adam had done what was said, if Adam done what was required, then fine. But all died in Adam. Christ is the only one who keeps the law, that he takes away the requirements of the law, that they might be nailed to that cross. He says here, it was hostile to us. It was contrary to us. And notice Paul includes himself there. If anybody could have kept the Mosaic law, it was Paul, right? If anybody could have said, I got everlasting life because of my work, it could have been Paul. What does Paul say here? He says, it was contrary to us. And notice what Jesus does. He takes it out of the way. Christ doesn't die to make the requirement easier. But Christ, in his dying, removes all of the requirements. Brother, that's so very important. The reason I say that's so very important, because that is the faith. Uh, the faith plus crowd says Christ died to make things easier, right? There's a guy named Richard Baxter. That's what he said. Christ died for the old law or to take away the old law. But you must, faith is a work and repentance is a work. And your works are a work to contribute to your final salvation. But that's why it's called neonomianism, the new law versus the old law. That's very problematic. You see this in Arminianism as well. A lot of people think you continue on by your own working. No. A lot of people are fine. Yes, Christ saved. Great. Roman Catholicism saved. Great. But you have to continue in by doing all these things. Rather than saying that Christ took away all of the requirements. Christ took away all the debt that we owed. Christ in his dying removes all those requirements that we might be saved and redeemed in him and complete in him. That's why the faith plus group is so very, so very problematic because it sounds good, but it's not quite there. And perhaps these people were a little bit of that faith plus group, but Paul is saying, no, your completeness is in Jesus. They would have said your completeness. Yes. Okay. Christ, but you need to be certain. No, Paul's saying, no, it's in Christ alone. And notice how. Verse 13 or 14, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the, the cross. The requirement destroying cross work of our Lord 
is so vital, isn't it? I mean, this is another clear passage on penal substitutionary atonement. We owed God. Christ pays that debt. We owed God. Christ, our God deserves to punish us, but Christ has that penalty taken upon himself. He is the one who pays it. And as he pays it, our sins are nailed to that cross. Isn't that what he says? He has taken it out of the way, the requirements. How? By having nailed it to that cross. That's why 580 stanza three is so glorious. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Brother, that is a true reality for you today if you believe on Christ. Your sins have been nailed to that cross. Christ in his dying, Christ in his burial, Christ in his rising, Christ in his life. He is the one who dies for his people. And isn't that the gospel? Him living, dying, and rising again. If you believe on him and believe on what he has done, you shall be saved and find forgiveness. And your record of debts shall be nailed to that cross because of what he has done. Christ is good. Christ is gracious. Christ is triumphant. And he's triumphant by way of the cross. But also notice in his cross work, not just his standing in our stead, his substitution, but his conquest. Verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. What does this mean for the so-called powers that these heretics were saying they could rely upon? Christ defeated them. Angels, don't need to pray to them. Demons, don't need to worry about them. Christ has defeated them. Christ bore our sins upon himself, but Christ also has bruised or crushed the head of the serpent. And the serpent thought he had bruised, or the serpent does bruise his heel, but Christ crushes his head. And notice, how does he disarm it? How does he make a public spectacle of it by triumphing over them in it, namely the cross? Remember, the cross itself was meant to be for shaming people. It was meant to be the most brutal of ways to die, to shame the person dying, but also to make sure people would not do that thing that led to that dying. And so it really is stumbling to the Jews that the Messiah would die. And it is foolishness that gent the cross is not for the worst people ever. Christ dies upon that cross and through his cross work, he brings salvation through that cross work. He shows his triumph. That is the wisdom of God. Isn't it over the wisdom of man that Christ triumphs over the principalities and powers. Christ is the head of them. One sixteen or one ten. Christ is the creator of them. One sixteen. Christ is over all of them. So why would you rely upon them? Why would you pray to angels? Why would you do such things? Why would you pray to saints? Why would why would you? Christ has brought that redemption. He disarmed them. And the language here is very much military-like language. He disarmed them with his work. He makes a public spectacle. He exposes them, and he walks triumphantly. John Eady says, redemption is a work at once of price and power, of expiation and conquest, 
On the cross was the purchase made. On cross was the victory gained. The blood that wipes out the sentence was there shed. And the death, which was the death blow of Satan's kingdom, was there endured. Those nails which killed Christ pierced the sentence of doom, gave egress to the blood which canceled it, and inflicted at the same time a mortal wound on the host of darkness. That power which Satan had exercised was so prostrated that everyone believing on Christ is freed from his vassalage. We have triumphed in Christ, is also what he's saying. Died with Christ, buried with Christ, raised with Christ, made alive with Christ, triumphed in Christ. That should give us strength as we walk this world and as we deal with our own sins. And what's interesting is the language of disarming is the same word for stripping off, like we see in 111. He has stripped away. He has exposed how disgraceful those things are. And he marches triumphantly over them with his cross work. He is, if the language of triumph is that procession, he is marching, he is walking, he is the one, and we see his marching and his walking through his church. We see that he is seated at the right hand and he has proven to be who he said he is. And he really is triumphant. And he is making his enemies his footstool. This is why we are alive in him, because of what he has done for us. Some then might ask, though, if we are alive in him, and if we've died to our sins in him, and if we've been buried with him and raised with him, Mike, why do I still struggle with sin? Why do I still struggle with these trespasses? I thought he has taken them all away. Well, that is the eschatological tension, isn't it? <laughs> the remaining sin, remaining corruption. We have new hearts, we belong for new bodies. Beale says their circumcision by Christ has an already dimension, which is true, by which their spiritual identification with the old world has been stripped off. Yet also the full stripping off of their physically corrupt body must await the final resurrection at the end of the age, when also their inaugurated spiritual resurrection existence will be perfected. It's the language of already, not yet. Or inaugurated is probably better, and consummated. It has been inaugurated by the outpouring of the Spirit. We long for the consummation when the new heavens and new earth and the new world comes to be in its fullness. And so we as God's people, even though we are redeemed and changed and identified with him, we still have that remaining corruption. Paul understands that. That's why he says, don't lie. Here's what you are, don't lie. Here's what you are, be forgiving. Here's what you are. He understands that. But again, you start with where we are and who we are, and it helps us in our Christian walk. And I think the important thing to know for us is we'll still struggle with the act of sinning, but the guilt has been removed. And the dominion of sin has been removed, has it not? Sometimes we don't always feel like that, brethren, but that is true. The dominion of sin has been removed. He breaks the power of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulness clean. His blood availed for me. Brother, you might not feel like you're redeemed or feel like you've been changed or feel like sin is just uh, re uh, uh, remaining rather than reigning. But brethren, come back to Colossians and be reminded of what Christ has done for you. Be reminded of who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ and don't despair. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood 
avails for you based on his finished work. Davenant says, he therefore who despairs of being able to overcome the devil and all his satellites seems to deny the victory of Christ, who through his triumphing causes us to triumph. Christ is yours. The old man has died. The new man lives. You've been circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. You've been made alive in his death, burial, and resurrection. Brethren, that is your identity in him. Now live as a redeemed saint in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Oh Lord, our God, we are so forgetful of what you've done for us and what you do for us even now. We're so forgetful of our identity, of our dying, of our burial, and our rising again with you. Thank you for this vital union and what that means for us as your people. And may this give us strength as we walk this world, and as we battle against sin, and as we battle against the devil, and as we battle against the world. Give us strength, we do pray. Help us to be reminded of who we are, be reminded of what we are, and may that give us strength as we walk this world, knowing who supplies us with strength in the inner man, namely that spirit. Thank you, O God, for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for that agent of new creation who indwells your people. And there are many pet sins we struggle with, O God, many sins we feel we cannot shake. And we pray, O God, that we would come back and cling to your promises and ask for that power to work in us mightily. May we cling to your word. May we come to you by faith. And may we be reminded of what Christ has done and what Christ continues to do for us even now. Help us to live as the new man. Help us to know the old man has died. Help us to walk in a way that is pleasing unto you, that is becoming of the new creation. And, oh God, we long for the fullness to come in. We long for our bodies to be resurrected. We long, oh God, for Christ to come back and to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. But we're thankful, O oh God, that what we do not see yet by sight, we see by faith. And help us to cling to your word by faith this day as we walk this world. Be pleased to also save sinners this day as well, O oh God. Help us to sh- help, uh, please show them what they are in Adam. And may they find mercy and forgiveness in Christ, who is the last Adam. Thank you, O oh God, for what we are. Thank you for our identity in Christ. Now give us strength by your people to honor and glorify you now. In the name of Christ, amen.